Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Through the Frame. I'm your host, Jesse Carosi, and this podcast has been brought to you by the HPA. For those that are not familiar with the HPA, please check us out online at hpaonline.com. The HPA Net Committee has a lot of awesome content coming out, so be sure to check out what's new on our site. And for anyone tuning in for the first time that are not familiar with who the HPA is, they're a non-profit member association that connects businesses and individuals. But if you want a more in-depth verbal breakdown of who they are, or who I am for that matter, check out episode one of this podcast series. All right, we've got an awesome episode I'm really excited to get into because here with us today is a co-executive producer and a post-supervisor duo, Jenna Stevenson and Hamid Shockett. I thought it would be very interesting and, of course, informative for our listeners to get a feel for what does it mean to be a post-producer or a co-executive producer, for that matter, versus a post-supervisor on a high-budget scripted episodic show like Jupiter's Legacy. So what kind of creative impact do they have on the show? What are some of the challenges they face? Who do they each technically report to? How do they interface with the studio? How do they work with vendors? These are all the things that we're really going to get into. So with all that being said, just so everyone understands who our guests are that we have with us today, we've got Hamid, who's worked on House of Cards, Jupiter's Legacy, The Chair, Kung Fu Panda, Halo 4, and of course Jenna, who's worked on House of Cards, Warcraft, Veep, and Jupiter's Legacy. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Hamid and Jenna. Thanks for having us. Hello. Thanks for having us. No problem. Okay. So maybe a good place to start would be, how did you get hired to do the job Jupiter's Legacy? For you, Hamid, I guess, did you apply for the job or is it more of a situation where the studio finds you? Well, it's more of a situation where the studio finds me. Obviously, all shows need a post-producer and, or at least they should uh, have a post-producer. If you don't have one, get one. (laughs) And... (laughs) Ultimately, they have the need, and I've worked on a lot of shows for Netflix. I mean, I did six seasons of House of Cards, and so I knew a lot of the studio-side players going into the show. And so when House of Cards finished, I met with some of the studio executives about what was coming down the pike and what I could possibly throw my name in the ring for, and they mentioned Jupiter's Legacy. And I was very intrigued because I'm, I'm a big comic book nerd and I'm a big fan of Mark Miller's work. Jupiter's Legacy is based on the, the comics of the same name. And I said to them, yeah, this is something I'd really like to pursue. And so what happens after that is that they take my resume, credits, whatever, and they put that in front of the showrunner. And the showrunner then decides whether or not they want to meet with me and whomever else they want to meet with. And then I I go through an interview process, just like a normal job. And would that interview be with the studio or be with that showrunner? Well, normally I think it would be with both. I think that the studio would do a little pre-vetting uh, before going to the, the showrunner. But I already knew all the folks on the studio side and they were recommending me to the show because again, it's most of the same executives I worked with on House of Cards. So they, they would turn to the showrunner and say, hey, we think you guys might be a match. You guys should meet up. So hmm. that's, that's how that comes about. 
I see. And is it ever a situation where you often work with that same showrunner because you establish this kind of a working relationship? They just want to keep working together in the next job that they're on. They try to bring you along. That's the goal. You know, the, the goal is really, you know, this whole business is about relationships. So the goal really with any of these jobs is to have a lasting working relationship, not just from season to season on the same show, but, you know, eventually, no matter who it is and who you're working with, you end up having a shorthand. And having that trust with the showrunner is not exactly rare, but it's something to be coveted. And when you have that working relationship with someone, it's really great to be able to take that to other shows because it's just one less thing to worry about. Yeah, it seems very similar across many different jobs within our industry. And I guess if I look over to you, Jenna, it's a similar thing between you and Hamid, right? I assume that you've worked with Hamid on past jobs, considering that you have worked you worked on House of Cards. That's obviously maybe where this started. Yeah, exactly. So I worked on seasons four through six of House of Cards, and that's how Hamid and I started working together. And then once he got on Jupiter's Legacy, it was sort of a phone call hmm. <laughs> versus an interview. <laughs> I see. Yeah. Yeah. And it's important to note that uh, when Jenna and I first started working together, Jenna was our PA. She was our, our post-production assistant. Mm-hmm. And that was for all of one season. And then uh, we promoted her to post-coordinator. And then from there, she was promoted to post-supervisor. So she really worked her way up through the House of Cards post team. Mm-hmm. And then onto Jupiter's Legacy, she just came in right out the bat as a, as a post-supervisor as she was on House of Cards at the very end, but then also for Veep, right? At the, at the very end of Veep, yeah. I was a coordinator for the first six episodes and then was bumped up to post-supervisor for the last episode. Interesting. But this is a good example of mm-hmm. uh, what you were talking about, Jesse, where you develop a good rapport with somebody and you just want to keep that going from show to show. Because again, it's mm-hmm. one less thing to worry about. So Jenna and I have worked together for so many years now that I can just put things in her hands and not have to think about it because I know they're being taken care of properly. And that's what you want in a team member. Nobody wants to look over somebody's shoulder 100% of the time. So it's the same between me and Jenna as it is from our showrunner down to me. I think the goal of all of our jobs is really to give the person we report to one less thing to worry about. Yeah. You know, just put that on my plate and, and I'll take care of it. For sure. Yeah, and it's been it's been like especially helpful with working from home because we already like have a really good understanding of what needs to be done. I understand how he likes things done, how the show likes things done, you know, so it just it makes it so much easier. Yeah, that would have been hard if this was the first time you've worked together. Totally. And it was all remote. Totally, totally. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we did have team members who started with us fully remote during Jupiter's Legacy. And I think that transition is a lot easier because at the head of the department with me and Jenna managing everybody uh, who works along with us, I, I think it's easier in dealing with those people who just started with us remote. Some of the people we'd never met in person, even still have never met in person. Right. And it's just a lot easier because we have the strong working relationship that we can fall back on that a little bit in dealing with people that we've just never met. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And so with you each taking on certain different things, I'm curious if we get into the vendors, Mm -hmm. you know, if we look at this sequentially, you've just went through the interview process with the showrunner and the studio. You talk to Jenna. Okay, you've been brought on to the job. Now you need to find all of the vendors that you're going to work with. 
do you each vet different types of vendors as an example, like one person is focused a little bit more on one versus another, or is that all going through you, Hamid, in terms of choosing who gets to be on the job in terms of dailies, pitcher finishing, sound finishing and mixing, et cetera? It's an interesting question. Yet normally it would all go through me. I don't know if that's typical, but it, it, it is in just Jenna and my working relationship in no small part because I start much earlier than Jenna. So I think if Jenna were on much earlier, then a lot of that would fall to her. But because I tend to be the only person in post for a number of weeks and you know the showrunners are leaving to go on set and they just have so many other things to deal with that locking in who their sound and mix team are going to be and locking in who their composer is going to be and locking in who their colorist and dailies people are going to be is something that we really need to figure out early on. But all that said, you know, we we like to be repeat customers at vendors who we really like. So there are situations where we go in mm-hmm. saying, you know, it'd be really great if we could work here or work there and sort of stack the deck a little bit with places that we have a shorthand with. But then there's also things where throughout the season, Jenna and I will be vetting other vendors that we use for different things. For example, you know, um, there are a lot of mixed stages around town. We'll pick one for the show, but we tend to do ADR at a variety of facilities. So we've met a lot of the facilities that we have mixed at through just doing ADR with them. It's a bit of an ongoing vetting process. And in that sense, Jenna spearheads that more than I do because she is dealing with all those vendors and the ins and out of them uh, on a consistent basis throughout the season. I see. Gotcha. And so once the job gets going and dailies are coming in every day and the editors are actually working, I guess I'm curious which of you get involved with the actual creative side of the cut, if at all, because I'm sure that for the different versions of cuts that you're putting out, you have different people coming into the room to provide feedback, or maybe you have different review sessions with different, you know, like you said, the showrunner before, or maybe the director maybe has sessions. Who is involved? And I'm just curious to hear your involvement in that as well. You know, the editors will do their cut on their own. The directors will come in and do a director's cut on their own, unsupervised, what we call it. But I mean, it's uh, not that they need supervision, but the director and the editor will have their time on an hour long, it's a minimum of four days per the DGA mm-hmm. uh, that they mm-hmm. get to do pretty whatever they want to the episode. The director gets to put their vision forth of the episode. And then after that, it gets turned over to the showrunner. And then the showrunner, we, you know, it's not required, but generally the showrunner, because they're the showrunner, they, they get the respect of having a little unsupervised time, as it were. And then depending on the showrunner, at a certain point, the cut will be opened up to the internal team. So I'll, I'll see it, Jenna will see it, even the other editors will see it, and everybody will get to chime in to a certain extent. Big things that will bump on us, et cetera, et cetera. Like I said, that's not, that's not the case for every show, mm-hmm. but that is uh, that was the case on Jupiter's Legacy. We had very, very collaborative showrunner, and it was a great experience. It's always great to be able to engage on that level, and especially when notes come in from the studio, when we send the, the show to Netflix and notes come in from the studio, it's great to engage with the show side creatives on how to address those, address those notes. And those notes would go 
after the showrunner. So after the, because you had said that the the director gets four days to work with the editor to create the cut of their dreams, and then it gets turned over to the showrunner. I assume they ha- they don't have four days. They have a shorter period of time usually, and then that gets turned over to the internal team. Uh, no, the showrunners generally get longer. So mm. the directors get their four days minimum per the DGA, but then the showrunners get an extended period of time. And it all depends. It's kind of show specific in what we're able to accommodate in the larger show schedule. Mm-hmm. Ideally, it would be a couple, uh, a couple of working weeks uh, for the I showrunner see. to really dive in there and get the episode ready to be sh- to to show to the studio. I see. For Jupiter's Legacy, as an example, once you were ready to turn that over to the studio to see something. How was that turned over? Was that put on some type of online screening application or was that sent as a file to be viewed on an iPad or how was that actually monitored? Um, it's always uploaded on pics, at least for Netflix shows. That's the preferred secure platform because then everybody has a personal watermark that's already on mm-hmm. their file. And, you know, you can leave notes on pics or watch it as many times as you want. Gotcha. And is that is that whole note-taking experience something that was happening on this? Because I've actually read a few articles about some of the other people that are really taking advantage of, of having back and forth notes on cuts in pics. On Jupiter's, we didn't do that so much. Uh, it was primarily sent via email um, or you know phone calls. But on other shows, like I know David Fincher uses pics all the time and pretty much all That's of his actually notes. actually what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, pretty much all of his notes are on pics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so for House of Cards, I would say the majority of the notes that we got, everybody got so used to Fincher using it on House of Cards that everybody just kind of adopted it. So we used pics for note distribution not just for cuts, but for visual effects, for music, for even sound mixes um, at, at a certain mm. point. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a very robust platform. And once you get used to it, it's a very convenient way of working. But at the same time, it's it's not for everybody. You know, it's yeah. yeah, some people don't like to have it on the same screen, you know, so they'll be taking notes, pen and paper, and then typing them into an email while they're watching the cut things like that. So as Jenna said, on Jupiter's Legacy, we would get email notes that we had to track because pics, obviously the notes just stay up there. But mm-hmm. um, Jenna had a great system for us where we were able to track all the editorial notes. I would say that my primary responsibility with cuts is making sure that everybody is on the same page with the notes that we've received from the studio. So whenever they would send notes, we on our show used Airtable and Airtable is great because you can track everything from who sent the note, what day they sent it on, what we're going to do about the note, you know, do we want to make the change? Do we have another idea? Are we skipping it for some reason, for a creative reason? So pretty much my responsibility was making sure that all of the notes were addressed in one way or another. I see. Interesting. And then tracking the progress on all of those, because I assume some of the notes they may require going through visual effects or maybe it's like a wig fix or something like that. Totally. Yeah. And like you might have sound notes that you have to pass on to the sound team or you might, you know, be adding ADR lines. You might be moving scenes around and then that could result in actors being moved to different episodes. So all kinds of stuff like that. I see. It was also something that we used to pass responses to notes 
that Netflix may have had back right. to Netflix. So we would have a editor's comments or, or uh, show side comments column that we would put the Netflix note in there. And then as we were working with the editor and the showrunners to address that note, then whatever the response was, if we couldn't do it because they were asking for a certain piece of coverage that we just didn't have, or a note would completely unravel the scene and actually end up being the opposite of what they were trying to achieve, then we would be able to put the notes into the air table and then send them a link to that so that they could see our responses, whether we were able to do the note or not. Exactly. Yeah. And Airtable has a great like system where you can even color code notes. So we were able to mark things with specific colors based on how we were responding to the notes. I thought that was really helpful. I'm just I'm just actually looking this up right now. And I've never cause just because I've never heard of Airtable. But is it like a spreadsheet? Or I'm just trying to get a, to picture what it is. It's sort of like a Google sheet. Okay. It just has a little bit different functionality and a different interface i think it's just a preference which one you prefer i see it's it's interesting because there's all these companies that are really focusing on sharing of metadata and i think a lot of people that when they think about sharing notes between creatives it's all about you know when you hear software companies talk about it they're like get it into avid or get it from pix into avid so the editor can have access to it right there on the screen but (laughs) that doesn't solve (laughs) what you need to do which is track and manage the notes Right. That's exactly right. Exactly. On House of Cards, we actually had a system where if we received notes on the color grade on picks, that we were able to export those notes and get them into the base light for our colorist, Laura Jans Fazio, to be able to see the note on screen as she was working through them. But we had the added benefit of having those notes on picks so they were trackable. And what's great about Airtable is that if a month down the line somebody gave a new note, and it competed with the previous note. And somebody said, well, you know, why did we have this version? Or when did we do this? Or what was the reason behind this change? We were able to go back and take a look at it. And just as a quick aside, I think Airtable is a online database solution. Like you can build a database out of it. So it's more mm-hmm. like a FileMaker I see. replacement that can ultimately, I think, be pretty robust. We end up just using the free version. I'm sorry to say, sorry, Airtable. Yeah, but we end up, but uh, we end up just using the free version for our purposes. But it it can end up being pretty robust tool. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. I'm probably oversimplifying it. I see. And so, with the versions of cuts that we were talking about, mm-hmm. you had the studio give you notes, and in terms of your role, Jenna, you're managing that these are all happening. The work's getting farmed out to any of the vendors that need to touch this. Were you popping in and out of the room as well at any point, Hamid, to also provide notes? Just because we talked about the director having notes, the showrunner having notes, and then the studio having notes, but not you. Were you are you involved in, in between somehow? Yes, but I generally would filter my notes up into the showrunner. So whenever the showrunner mm-hmm. wanted to show us the cut and say, hey, what do you think? I would generate notes, but then collaborate with the showrunner my job is not to impress my creative vision onto the show. I always feel like my job is to make sure that the showrunner's creative vision is the one that ends up on screen. That's interesting. Okay. When I'm giving notes, I always try to look at the cuts in a way through their eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, it may not necessarily be the choice I would have made, but that's filmmaking. That's that's how subjective things can be. I guess that's why you also want to 
partner yourself up with a showrunner that is great and keep working with that person because you often share a similar vision, right? Right, exactly. And you know, one of the main ways that I would participate in that level of the creative was not necessarily before the studio got the show, but after the studio got the show. So they would send their notes back and then the showrunner and the editor and I and other EPs would sit down and look at these and try to get to the heart of the note and then try to pitch different ways to address them because it's never as easy as, hey, just cut away from that line earlier or put in a close-up of this person or whatnot. It ends up being Mm -hmm. a give and take of ideas, really. And sometimes we're pitching six, seven different versions of how to address a more global note that's not very technically specific. One example I can point to is the end of episode one of Jupiter's Legacy. We have the big hilltop battle, and then everybody goes to the Union, and spoiler alert, Blackstar walks into the med bay at the Union of Justice. That was not the original ending of the show. That was all born out of a note that we had received. It was a very good note, very astute about making sure that all the storylines for the first episode were tracking. And that is an ending that we all came up with months after we had finished shooting to make sure that all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed. But that was that was part of the process, you know, and there are multiple scenes throughout Jupiter's Legacy. There are multiple scenes throughout House of Cards that I could point to it and say that is not what was originally intended. That's just what we found out of the edit. And a lot of things always are found in the edit. But again, just to take it all back, a lot of the times when I come in to sort of spearhead a lot of these options is really after we have shown it to the studio and we know what the studio now wants, we know what the showrunner now wants, and it's all a matter of synthesizing that into a cohesive final product. Gotcha. Makes sense. And so in that scenario, you may have to go back and reshoot considering if they're asking for the episode to be closed out in a different way, you just might not have the content, right? Yeah. uh, But that's also, you know, thinking outside the box is one of the ways that you solve these problems because, you know, the studio doesn't necessarily have the appetite for reshoots, you know? So if they're Mm -hmm. saying, hey, is there a better way for us to track what's happening with Blackstar at the end of the episode? then we have to sit there and go, okay, what are all the tools at our disposal? And we honestly, we look at surrounding episodes as well and say, all right, could that scene help if it was at the end of episode one? Or, you know, what if we got rid of this scene, but then move this scene to the end instead? Would that help? There's a lot of that. Yeah. I don't know how it is on shows that I haven't worked on, but shows that I have worked on, especially House of Cards and especially Jupiter's Legacy, order of scenes is a fluid thing, you know, because ultimately you'll see it shot and something either takes longer than it did to read on the page or whatnot, and you end up having to adjust pacing by by shuffling scenes sometimes. And we did that more than a few times on Jupiter's Legacy to a really strong benefit to the show. Yeah, I feel like the way you're thrown into things with this being an origin story, there's not many others that I can think of that have an origin story like this where you know, you are just thrown right into it. And there's a lot happening. It took until episode two or three for me to get my bearings as to everything going on. It was it was quick, right? Yeah. In terms of the buildup to action. Yeah, it, it's, it certainly is. And my own personal belief, and, and I think we did this 
well on Jupiter's Legacy is that you don't want to talk down to the audience. Everybody who's watching mm -hmm. Jupiter's Legacy has seen countless hours of TV and countless series beforehand and movies and all that. So I always find that I personally like stories that kind of thrust you in. You got to figure a little, uh, some of it out as you go. You know, if every show started with, mm -hmm. you know, here's Sheldon, he's the utopian, here's Brandon, he's Paragon, they don't get along, you know, you got to get that backstory a little more organically, which is something that we knew 100% going into the show and going into episode one and to an extent to episode two. But what was amazing is you, you were able to tell that backstory without people even realizing they were learning the backstory until later on in the season. That was what blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I, I, I hope so. I hope people got that. Yeah. Out of it. You know, so that it all sort of congeals at the end with, and you just start understanding more. You get to episode three and you're like, oh, okay, I understand. I know who that is. I understand the dynamic here. And Yeah, for um, sure. And you're able to move forward and just not have to think about it. Well, I have, a, I have an interesting question that came up because of the last episode I did of this podcast series. So I just had a talk with some sound effects editors that did Handmaid's Tale, and they were talking about this thing that I just learned about called Temp Love and how they like to get involved with providing the editorial team with libraries to work from to avoid people falling in love with temp sounds that the picture editor puts in. So I'm just curious, was anything like that happening on Jupiter's Legacy where the sound team were providing things for the offline? Not really. Yeah, not really. Yeah, and I don't think this happened on season one. This is a build-up, now that I think about it, it was a build-up by the time they hit season four. I'm sure they were well, well-oiled machine for this, but yeah, that's many seasons in. Yeah, and the other thing about our show is that, um, as you know, we're putting the cuts together, we don't have any finished VFX in the edit. So the visual effects of those superpowers had to be designed so that then the sound team could create something that works with the visual effect as well. I see. Until then, we just use sound effects libraries gotcha. to, yeah. to fill in. Generic I-beam. Yeah, they, they made a joke about like a dog bark that everybody uses this dog bark, but someone fell in love with it. And then when they got to the final sound, they weren't able to change it because, you know, the showrunner really loved that dog bark. But they were like, oh, it's from this library. And anyone that works in sound recognizes it. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we didn't have that problem because everything was all original for our show. We have an amazing sound team led by our supervising sound editor and sound designer, uh, Dane Davis, who won an Oscar for The Matrix. Hmm. He was our supervising sound editor for the effects side, and then we had another supervising sound editor, Steph Flack, for dialogue. But Dane, you know, has an incredible body of work. So when it actually got into time where we were spotting for all the sound effects and everything, he had 300 ideas to throw out. And I'd say 95% of the time, his the first thing that he showed us, we were like, yep. And then the other 5% of the time was, can you make a small adjustment here or there? But uh, to get back to your question about temp love, the, the place that we see the most temp love across the board, at least I do, is with music. Mm -hmm. Putting in temp score or temp mm -hmm. needle drop. You know, somebody will just be like, oh, hey, let's use Led Zeppelin for this, right? And yeah, that becomes unaffordable, maybe, or, you know, it's just not in our budget. We want to replace it with score down the line and have our composer do it. And half the time, it's just like, oh, well, 
you know, that, uh, that cue that we use from the social network it just had this, this little thing to it. And then you sit there, Jenna and I are going, yeah, great. You know, but it was in the social network and made for the social network. And yes. so we can't mm-hmm. use it for our show. So let's, uh, let's talk about something else. Yeah. The happy ending to that story is that our composer, Steph Economou, absolutely knocked the score out of the park. That Temp Love was very quickly forgotten once we started getting score in. Yeah, she was phenomenal. So is that typical then that you would have someone in that position? Because I was also thinking that it would be fun to find new bands and new emerging artists that you might source out as a showrunner, as a co-producer, not sure who exactly would vet these kinds of people, but is that a thing? But it, it sounds like it's not because you had a composer create everything specifically for the show. Oh, it definitely is. Yeah, we have um, also a music supervisor and a music editor, but the, the music supervisor provides us with a lot of great temp options for score that we can replace or for a needle drop specifically. So we did use several in Jupiter's Legacy. What do you mean by needle drops? You've said that a couple times, and I'm not familiar with that term. Needle drop is basically just think about putting a record needle down onto a disc. So it's basically playing a song that is a pre-recorded song, as opposed to score. Some people call it source music. Like if you wanted to put Tiny Dancer by Elton John into your show, Mm -hmm. and that's playing, that would be a needle drop. So it's something that is pre-recorded, a pre-existing song. I see. Or even pre-existing piece of classical music recording that you'd want to put into the show as opposed to score which is specifically composed and recorded by the composer and their team i see so there are situations then that you are going out and trying to find new emerging unknown bands that may have a certain sound that could work for future jobs oh yeah but it, nobody is it, nobody's going to trust me to do that uh, by any means <laughs> on my music library But yeah, like Jenna was saying, we have a music supervisor and most shows do have a music supervisor who is basically just responsible to be there and say, hey, we really want a song kind of sounds like this and let's put that in. Or, hey, for this dance scene in episode six, we want to have Prince playing in the background, Mm -hmm. but we probably can't afford that. So find us a emerging artist that may be similar, but less costly. Mm -hmm. So Our music supervisor on Jupiter's Legacy was Brienne Rose. She did Russian Doll as well, which had an amazing soundtrack with the amount of great songs that they featured in that show. And we Mm -hmm. saw that and our showrunner was really impressed with the show and I was really impressed with the show. So finding that person sometimes is up to the showrunner. But in my experience, the showrunner has generally said, Hamid, find someone good. And so that generally has fallen to me. Our music supervisor on House of Cards was also our music editor. So that was easier. I see. Interesting. Another question I had for you that I thought was really interesting on this job was there are moments in time when you're switching between two, well, you're switching between two moments in time. And I've seen it on plenty of shows where there's a different mat. There's a different aspect ratio for a flashback or a different aspect ratio for certain things within the show. But I've never seen an aspect ratio transition almost like it's animated where it mm-hmm. would go from let's say 16 by 9 and then all of a sudden you'd see the the letterboxing the black on the top and bottom start all of a sudden shrinking top and bottom until it lands on the 2 to 1 frame or whatever the frame was and i just thought it was so unique and i was curious who chose to do that that was a collaboration between our showrunner and our dp 
hmm. uh, way back when. They they wanted to have a visual style that differentiated each time period, and the decision came down that aspect ratio shifts were the most effective way of doing that. Yeah, it was really clever. I've never seen that before. But every time I saw it, I was like, oh, that was so cool. <laughs> Maybe other people might not notice that don't deal with aspect ratios like me, but I thought it was really clever. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So moving on to color then, you had Joe Finley doing final grading on this. And I'm just curious, who was involved in the sessions with him and sign-offs on color in general? Well, you know... If you get your show graded by Joe, you don't really have to do much afterwards, right? <laughs> so Joe is an absolute godsend on any show that he's on. His instincts are second to none, which is great because, you know, then you're using your time effectively. You're not going in there and saying, all right, let's completely redo this because the colorist was way off the mark or was just doing something that they wanted to do. You know, I've had experiences in color bays where colorists were like, okay, well, you know, I thought this would be great. And then at the end of the day, you're like, oh, we don't. So let's change it. That never happened with Joe. And so mm, that's good. Ultimately, we took a very traditional approach to the color on the show, which was Joe did his pass. Then the DP would go in and tweak with Joe. And then me and our showrunner and one of our other executive producers would go in and basically screen the episode and just tweak from there. But it wasn't extensive by any means. I think when it got to me and the showrunner and, and our other EP, by the time we got in there, I think we spent maybe two hours on each hour of television because it had gone through its paces. And again, that just goes back to having a team that you trust implicitly, like we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. We hired Joe for a show in no small part because I had recommended him. He and I had worked together on Game of Thrones back many years ago. And I had followed his career after that and before that, but also after that. And I had recommended him to our showrunner and our showrunner was like, yes, absolutely. And, you know, just if you have enough conversations with the colorist in advance of grading, then the colorist is going to know exactly how to get you what you want. You know, um, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people approach color as like a blank slate and they're going to go in and, and try to regrade the whole thing. But I look at Joe as I look at, sound designer or mixer or or an editor where you know you have that collaboration there so having a colorist that you know you can go in and say all right they've gotten me 90 percent of the way there is just really much more efficient i see and also staying in line with the goal of educating lots of people tuning in that want to be post supervisors and post producers etc i'm curious jenna were you typically on point to work with the finishing producer at sim to make sure these sessions were scheduled at specific times and were you involved in in the coordination of that kind of thing on this show it was a little different i think um because since we were working remote and it sort of depended on hamid's schedule like when he could go in occasionally to view color because he would have to sit in a different bay than joe he kind of would lead on scheduling that himself because it would depend on his schedule. But in regards to like the general scheduling of all things, yes, that is pretty much my primary job. Just making sure, you know, that our turnovers get to every single vendor, sound, music, DI, like you said, the finishing producer on the show is Byron Smith at Sim mm -hmm. and working with Ben, who was our online editor to make sure that he 
understood the cut and got the vams back to us to check um and then make sure that he received all of the visual effect shots that were dropped in because we had a ton on the show but a lot of scheduling a yeah. lot of just making sure that all the t's are crossed and all the i's are dotted <laughs> yeah makes sense and i guess you would have been working pretty closely i guess as well with the vfx editor in terms of the coordination of of having all of these shots returned in a timely manner and that things are staying on schedule? Totally, yeah. And a lot of that is also the visual effects producer um, and associate producer and just making sure that our schedules are aligned and that um, once, you know, we're about to hit color days and we're about to hit mixed days, we have all the shots in. I see. So from what I'm gathering in terms of, uh, again, just looking at the track for anyone that wants to become a post-supervisor, it makes sense to have come up the way you did, right? Where you, you start as a PA, you move up to a coordinator, you move up to supervisor. I'm assuming that's the most common track for anyone that wants to do this. Of all the post-supervisors I know, that's pretty much the only way I've heard it mm. happen. Hamid has a little bit different track than that. Um, but people who are currently post-supervisors like my peers, I've heard that that's the primary way. Gotcha. And what about for you, Hamid, in your position? Um... Because you never were a PA, right? Um, I was never a post-PA. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) And maybe that step is skipped, but do you think that you wouldn't become a post-producer without having been a post-supervisor first? And I guess we're talking TV language, just so everybody also knows, like, the post-producer position isn't really a thing in feature land it's in features it as far as what a post producer is responsible for it equates to a feature post supervisor but the feature post supervisors are not generally on the show for as long as a post producer is yeah there's a lot of features that i work on that the post super isn't even brought on until they finish shooting yeah exactly whereas it's nice in tv where you get brought on real early so that there's no surprises yeah i mean obviously you need post experience to be a post producer jenna was saying i had a little bit of a different track because i kind of grew up on david fincher projects and so i was uh working as a visual effects producer for certain sequences of the social network. And then I went on to be a visual effects producer for certain sequences on Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And then I worked on a couple other Fincher projects. And then for House of Cards, I actually started off as the DI producer on season one. And Hmm. because I knew that team so well and understood the language of what they were doing, I then was the post supervisor on season two And then I was the post-producer from season three onward. So it really was how I ended up at post-producing was not necessarily based on my experience on post-producing or post-supervising shows. It was Mm -hmm. based on my knowledge of DI, visual effects, post-workflows. I was a dailies colorist at one point for a short period of time. I have been a dailies technician. Mm -hmm. I've done all of that. So I sort of was the jack of all trades and then knowing all of that process could then come in and quickly go from post-supervisor to post-producer. I also had been a feature post-supervisor on a couple films. The last film I did was Spike Jones's film, Her. I see. I came off of that and into House of Cards season two and then just stayed with House of Cards uh, from then on. I see. And from what I've gathered from any of the the features I've been on, it seems, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the post-supervisor 
you know, they have editorial under their division, but the VFX feels a lot more separated with the VFX producer and VFX supervisor really leading that. Am I wrong to think that you're more involved in that on the TV side than you would be as a post supervisor on the feature side? In a general sense, I would say yes, but at the same time... Yes, I'm wrong? Or <laughs> no, yes, I, I would say yes, that that's... yes, that is the case that you uh, would be more involved in the visual effects on the TV side than on the feature side. But also, mm-hmm. I mean, again, I like I said, I grew up on Fincher movies uh, early in my career. Yeah. And on those films, it is really necessary for everybody to wear a lot of hats. So everybody is doing multiple things and everybody is, you know, is giving 110% and working in all these different departments all at the same time. So even on early seasons of House of Cards, we didn't have a separate visual effects producer. Actually, in all of House of Cards, we didn't have a separate visual effects producer or visual effects supervisor. We just had the post team. So when I took over Hmm. as the post producer in season three, I de facto became the visual effects producer at the same time. And then because of my visual effects background, starting in season four, I was the main visual effects supervisor for the show as well. And then we would bring on another on-set supervisor as needed if I couldn't be at a particular shoot or, or it was honestly more complex than I was willing to feel confident about, then I would bring somebody else in. But, um, But everything I've ever worked on, and I think this might be an abnormality, but everything I've ever worked on, I have always had a very heavy hand in both post and visual effects. On Jupiter's Legacy, we had a completely dedicated visual effects team, a, a very robust one and very and a very experienced crew. This team, honestly, it was one of the strongest visual effects teams I've worked with. Yeah, we, we had a great visual effects crew. We had a great visual effects editor, Tara Fiddler, who mm-hmm. is so exceptionally detail-oriented that nothing slipped through the cracks. So it was all very smooth. That was a bit of a departure for what I'm used to in that I'm, like I said, I'm used to being the visual effects producer and supervisor for shows like House of Cards. With Jupiter's Legacy, it's so big. You know, we had to have these really A-list visual effects producer and associate producer and supervisor. And like they were just Mm -hmm. uh, top notch. Half of our crew came from Game of Thrones. The other half was from Stranger Things and, and features, Oscar nominated features. And so it was great that I was able to, quite frankly, not be a part of any of that. It was, you know, it was a load off my mind. But then as far as visual effects were concerned, I then was able to participate more in the creative side of the visual effects with the rest of the EPs. Interesting. Gotcha. Well, do you think there's anything else that would be worth sharing to further educate people on what it is you do? Because we've kind of touched on everything I had in mind. You'll see post teams of all shapes and sizes. That's not to say that anybody's doing it better or worse. It's just everything with post tends to be what do you like? Right. Right. It's like what works best for you. Mm-hmm. It's like what you were saying, Jesse, about forming relationships with showrunners and things like that. And it, there's even the internal post team. You know, do we like having an extra assistant editor around to be able to do all of this ancillary deliverable stuff and turnovers and things like that so we can keep the first assistants working with their editors? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Right. You know, like sometimes that's a mm-hmm. benefit, sometimes it's not. Right. And when to add all those people. It just comes down to, yes, practicality, but also at the same time, you know, what do we just like having around? What makes Jenna and I feel better about the work that's getting done? Right. Yeah, totally. I see. Makes sense. Cool. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Many people tune in to learn about varying jobs in our industry. 
and or people looking to learn more about certain positions they want to aspire to and information i feel like on the jobs that you two both hold i feel like it's 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 hard to find just by searching on the web to be honest so your knowledge is greatly appreciated and thank you for joining us thanks for having us yeah it's been our pleasure great talking to you no problem all right and thank you everyone else for tuning in hopefully these podcasts have been half as educational for you as they have been for me but stay tuned for the reveal of who our next guest will be on social media and until next time that's a wrap